when you get into the nuances of French, German, you know, European, just to name a few, legal systems and labor laws, you're really walking into a hornet's nest of complexity. So I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's time has come after 20 years to ask companies to try and at least make it clear that it's their burden, but it'll be interesting how it plays itself out. And I think it's a lot more complicated than maybe the relatively simple formulations in the memo would suggest. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And I say it's another episode, but you are in for a treat. Because this episode, I have Kevin Avakoff and I have Laura Perkins, and we're here to talk about the Hughes Hubbard annual FCPA alert. It's entitled Fall 2022, but it's the annual alert, and it is packed with information. It's the first alert that comes out, so it's always something that is well studied by everyone in the greater compliance community. I wanted to thank you guys for doing the yeoman's job of doing this. and. Let's just jump right into it. We've had the chance to visit a little bit about this before. For me, and I think for you guys too, the, probably the biggest thing this year was the, the Monaco memo and related speeches by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, Kevin Poli, and others. So with that introduction, first of all, welcome back. And what should we open this discussion with? Should it be the Monaco memo or something else? That's a great place to start. And Tom, let me say thanks for having me and us back. It's always a pleasure, always a treat to be able to spend some time with you. So maybe I'll launch first and then I know Laura will will jump in quickly and either agree or disagree with me. As you know, we're a friendly but spirited group. So the place that I start, as Laura will probably predict, I'd start here, is the oddity of the DOJ's recent discussions about requiring chief compliance officer certifications. And I start there just because I find it troubling and largely at odds with what I think would be a better both governance and practical solution. I'm also troubled by what, to me, and I've said this before, is sort of this dystopian or Orwellian idea that this is actually being done to help compliance officers, that having them certify at the conclusion of a monitorship along with the CEO that policies and procedures are in place, effective, and they're not aware of any things that should have been brought to the attention of the DOJ, I don't think in any sense helps chief compliance officers. And I really hope the DOJ would reconsider this. And while this won't make me popular in boardrooms, I think if they really wanted to do something to help compliance officers, that would be a board certification, which to me would be more consistent with good governance And if you want to see the compliance officer get the right resources, 
make the board put their name on something, and you can rest assured that resources will find their way to the places they need to go. Or before you jump in, you worked in the Department of Justice, and what does it mean when the Deputy Attorney General releases a memo such as this? How do you, as a line prosecutor, view this? Because it's really directed towards you, not to Tom Fox or a CCO. And what were some of the key highlights in there you would see from a prosecutorial perspective? Yeah. So, like Kevin said, thank you for having us. Yeah. So, while I agree and somewhat disagree, actually, with what you said, Tom, the memo is directed toward prosecutors, but it's also a messaging mechanism for the department to a Tom Fox and to compliance officers and in-house legal people and corporations generally. So it is styled as guidance to prosecutors, and it is absolutely guidance to prosecutors. And even more so than guidance, it's sort of expectations and mandatory policy requirements for prosecutors, but it also is meant to send a message to companies. But going back to sort of as a prosecutor, as a prosecutor, you would look at this, you would review it, you have to understand Where is it that you are being limited, if you will, in your prosecutorial discretion? And where are you being directed by sort of senior management at the Department of Justice? So the Monaco memo expresses the department's desire to continue, as the memo says, a focus on investigating and prosecuting individuals who are responsible for corporate misconduct. So that is a message to prosecutors that we want you to try to make cases against culpable individuals where possible when you are investigating corporate misconduct. So in addition to the corporate aspect of your investigation and case, you as a prosecutor are being told by department management that you are expected to investigate the individuals. And further than that, you are told in the memo that you must And your sort of department and division, if it doesn't have a policy on this, must generate a policy whereby if you look to bring a case against a corporation and you haven't charged individuals, you need to describe why and say what your sort of plan is to try to do that. So as a prosecutor, you review the memo and you look to understand what is it that it is directing me to do that is different from what I'm already doing? And then how you work that into your caseload. One of the great pleasures I have in visiting with you, Kevin, is you generally can have a theme for us. And it's usually a rock and roll theme. And I took that as inspiration when I wrote about the Monica memo, because I took Glenn Fry's song, The Heat Is On, because I thought this memo put the heat on both you guys as outside counsel and investigators in significant cases, as well as companies. And that heat came in the form of speed, speed of self-disclosure, speed of disclosure and cooperation after an investigation commences. So I really wanted to get your thoughts on, was that a change? Had that been coming? Or is this really just business as usual for someone like yourselves who are outside counsel to a corporation who may be investigating a matter. Yeah, and you know, this, Tom, as you can appreciate, you know, this has been an issue while certainly explored maybe with more words than in the past. It's an issue that I can recall having discussions in podium presentations and in other more heated rooms for, you know, the 20 plus years I've been practicing in this space and boy, 30 plus years I've been doing it in related spaces with the SEC. The government has, as a thematic matter, they'd like to know as quickly as possible for a lot of good reasons, right? You know, if it's ongoing misconduct, obviously they want to 
be able to do what they need to to shut it down. Evidence doesn't tend to stay in one place, and they want to make sure that things don't go missing, people don't go missing. So there's a lot. I don't criticize the government policy and wanting speed. On the other hand, as a defense lawyer or as a corporate counselor, the challenge is making sure that when you go to the government, you go with accurate information, accurate facts. You can't take things back once they come out of your mouth in front of the government. And, you know, if you, in good faith, provided some information that you later discover to have been wrong, you certainly not only should, but are obliged to go in and advise the government that that's the case. But you certainly can do prejudice to your client if, for example, you think that some conduct was mischievous in the worst possible ways, when in fact is a very innocent explanation. And you really, as a defense lawyer or as a corporate counsel, you'd never want to do that. And so it's a great challenge to figure out when the magic moment is, you know, as the Mets like to call it, of when do you have exactly enough information to feel comfortable that you have a reportable event. The DOJ, while they like to see certain people, they're not usually interested in gratuitous reports of possibilities. They want to know that it's a self-report of potential or actual misconduct. When do you have enough to have a concrete view? And now, when do you have enough to be able to share with them who was responsible for that? And I think that the art of doing this, as it always is, is to find that balance between when you know enough to know that there's something reportable and know what you don't know and have a work plan for how you're going to get there and then go and present that. Or if I could turn to you for this discussion around monitors. You've been at the Department of Justice. You've overseen monitors. You've worked with monitors from that side of the fence, and, and you've done it from the Defense Council point of view. And I'm continually intrigued by what I see as a sort of a dialogue between the department, corporations, compliance officers, people like yourselves in private practice, and particularly around monitors. And so we've seen different focuses and approaches to monitors. Do you see the Monaco memo as really a different approach, or is it a way that the DOJ has looked at monitors previously? I think it is a slightly different approach. I believe that previously the determination of whether a monitor was going to be required or not really focused almost solely, not entirely, but almost solely on the current effectiveness of the compliance program. So the Monaco memo adds 10 factors that are to be considered. One of those factors is the current effectiveness of the program, but there are other factors as well, like whether the company self-reported, the sort of pervasiveness of the conduct, and a number of other factors that don't necessarily relate to the current compliance program. That I think is a bit of a difference and may end up in monitors being more punitive than they were in the past in the sense that a monitor is put in place for a company that has a currently effective compliance program, but it's more of a punishment because the factor of the pervasiveness of the conduct or the fact that the company didn't self-report is weighed more heavily than the current effectiveness of the program. That may only happen sort of at the margins where maybe it was a question in the past as to whether a monitor would have been necessary or not, and the lack of a self-report might push it over the top. It's also a little bit of a difference in the way that the department is requiring prosecutors to be involved in the budgets for monitors and oversight of the budgets for monitors. That is a slightly new and different aspect. 
and it'll be interesting to see sort of how that plays out for companies, whether that it ends up being a real benefit, because there have been some criticisms in the past of monitors. There have been criticisms that monitors may go wild, whether those are warranted or not. You know, that's a separate question. But there certainly have been those criticisms. And will the oversight by prosecutors into the monitor's budget and scope sort of change that dynamic? That's something I think we'll see in the coming years. There's a couple of other points I'd just like to touch on from the Monaco memo. The first was clawbacks, and the second one was ephemeral messaging or instant messaging. I think we do have to acknowledge clawbacks. We do see something different, but I saw continuity when it came to instant messaging, particularly around with the SEC enforcement actions from their perspective this year. Anything we should highlight on those two areas from the Monaco memo? Yeah, I guess I'll jump in on clawbacks, maybe. You know, it's interesting You look back to Sarbanes-Oxley in 2001, and you saw a first effort. I think it was first effort at this. And I I remember I was representing a company where there was multiple periods of financial misstatements and all sorts of misconduct. And we were sitting in the boardroom trying to figure out, well, what does this actually mean? Are we required to get the stock and bonuses back? Is the SEC requiring that this be done? And I called the SEC staff. And the person I spoke to will be nameless, but they said, we have no idea. This provision came in at the last minute. Somebody thought it was a good idea, but they really don't know how it works. We looked at the contracts and realized there was no way to do it. But as a concept, I think it's an interesting and useful idea. As a practical matter, getting into the employment space and really trying to figure out whether you can claw back in the face of some employment agreements that are in place, and especially a significant percentage of the enforcement actions in this space and prosecutions are to foreign companies. When you get into the nuances of French, German, you know, European, just to name a few, legal systems and labor laws, you're really walking into a hornet's nest of complexity. So I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's time has come after 20 years to ask companies to try and at least make it clear that it's their burden, but it'll be interesting how it plays itself out. And I think it's a lot more complicated than maybe the relatively simple formulations in the memo would suggest. I think the memo does give companies some flexibility in that I think it is phrased as, we want you to think about how to incentivize compliance through compensation structures. One method may be clawbacks. Another may be sort of a carrot approach where you give bonuses for compliance. And I think the department, since the release of the memo, at least in the FCPA space, has made some comments that, you know, really what we're going to be looking for is, did the company think about this? Were they intentional in sort of how they structured their compliance programs more generally? Did they see if clawbacks were a possibility? Did they think that through? And if clawbacks really weren't a possibility, did they put in place the carrot side of things? So I think it does give a little bit of flexibility. Because it really, like Kevin said, I mean, particularly in foreign jurisdictions or even in the U.S. with employees with existing contracts, it's going to be very difficult for a company to sort of mid-contract approach a CEO, for example, and say, we just want to add a clawback to your contract. And maybe they'll agree, maybe they won't, right? So it's a time, like Kevin said, for companies to sit down, think about this and consider but I think the memo does give the companies a little bit of flexibility in how they approach this in a way that demonstrates that they take compliance seriously. I'd now like to turn to the year in FCPA enforcement. 
And although we had a smaller, perhaps, number of cases, I found them very instructive, lots of lessons to be learned. But we also had one very significant individual prosecution and several guilty pleas as well. So I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on how do you assess the year in criminal enforcement? I'll start with this one. I think it was a in FCPA world and you know, there are ebbs and flows in the number of corporate resolutions in any given year. This year was a slower year with corporate enforcement actions, but there were some very large ones like Glencore, for example, was a sizable resolution. And there were a number of, as you pointed out, Tom, individual prosecutions and trials, even some case law being created in the FCPA space. So from that perspective, it was a fairly busy year busier on the policy front than I think really on the enforcement front, kind of update wise, but you know, a busy year for the FCPA unit at the Department of Justice. Yeah, I would just say, you know, I think a little bit what we see is the lag effect of the pandemic too. I applauded the government's enthusiasm for saying that it was business as usual through the pandemic and investigations were motoring along. But look, due to no fault, there's reality to it. And both from an internal corporate perspective and from a governmental perspective, it's just a lot harder. It was a lot harder during the pandemic to really get underneath things. Even if you had an investigation going, things took a lot more time to organize things. It's a lot easier for a witness to dodge you when you're connecting across 8, 9, 10, 12 time zones by video than it is when you show up in their office. And so I think there's sort of a natural lag that's now kicking in. And as Laura, I'll steal her guidance to me, is want to tell me the more individual prosecutions you have, the more of a train and resources it is on the department and emphasize that. I don't make a judgment on whether that's a proper priority or not. That's certainly the government's prerogative. But as that becomes the priority, It takes an enormous amount of resources to chase the individual cases. And there's a reality to those which individuals, if something's going to go the distance, it'll be an individual much more likely than a corporation that just has too much to lose to really go the distance on it. The individual prosecutions, let me pick up on your point, Laura, that we actually got some case law created. And it appears that the DOJ or the department rather can successfully prosecute now on internal controls in a criminal context. I know that's something that we had all thought was possible, but now we have pretty good evidence of that. And I know it's got to go up to a court of appeals, but how would you assess that ruling by the trial court? Like you said, Tom, I think for years, a number of us thought that that was a possibility, right? It's in the statute and it's just a matter of, is the evidence there to actually prove that case in order to prove an internal controls violation by an individual? I think that the, at least historically, the department's position has been that it will use that sparingly, I think, against individuals, that they are not a regulator like the SEC. It really needs to reach the criminal intent level, which statutorily, it, it does need to reach that level. So I don't think that sort of the fact that the department was able to sort of successfully do it once means there will be this sort of watershed opening where in every case we're going to see individuals charged with internal controls violations. There will be, as there always has been, sort of an assessment of is the evidence there to bring a books and records charge against an individual or internal controls or substantive FCPA. So those are 
I think things that, that have been considered before and will continue being considered as to whether the evidence exists. I'd now like to turn to the international arena and ask maybe uh, start off with a couple of different focuses. One, I'm always impressed when we see multinational investigations and enforcement actions. And once again, this year, I thought even though there may have been fewer cases, we saw a great cooperation amongst prosecutors across many countries in the investigations and then the resolutions. And then two, maybe focus on some of the things you guys saw in France or perhaps the United Kingdom as well. Sure. I'll jump first. So it was not so long ago that if you talk to a senior executive or a senior legal person in a company in France, if you use the word self-report, they'd sort of giggle. And the giggle would emerge from this profound sense that even if I wanted to self-report, who would I talk to? Starting from there all the way to the resolutions you highlight, Tom, the world has profoundly changed. The PNF, I think, has proven itself an able partner with the English and the Americans in prosecuting certain cases. I think they have a serious process and serious people. And at the same time, they've learned the fine art of resolution, which has really allowed them through their CGIP, which is their equivalent to basically a deferred prosecution agreement. They've learned the fine art that by getting the opportunity to settle, companies will cooperate more freely. And you have companies that now enlist multi-jurisdictions, as you suggest, almost from the outset. If they're wise, it is from the outset and have those sorts of proceedings proceed simultaneously in parallel. Or sometimes we've been in situations where the English and the French or others will literally work together in interviews or similar proceedings. And it's a profoundly different environment than the one some of us who've been doing this a while remember 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And that's reflected really in our alert. It started off before I joined the firm, but it was only the U.S., right? We didn't have sections on other countries and the development in their anti-bribery enforcement efforts. But now there really are other countries that are actively enforcing anti-corruption statutes, both against individuals and corporations. I mean, when I started with the Department of Justice, I guess it's about 15 years ago now, most, I would hope, um, if I sent sort of an MLAT somewhere that I could maybe get a piece of evidence. But today, I mean, there's informal cooperation, there's prosecutors that have sort of the phone numbers of law enforcement people in other countries and talk frequently about the cases and investigations. So it really is a different world than it was several years ago. And it behooves companies to be aware of that. Like Kevin said, if an issue is found, you know, you have to think about sort of who do I tell about this? How do I structure this? Because it may not only be a U.S. problem. So I need to think about it from day one, that this could be a problem that I need to deal with U.S. authorities and French authorities and U.K. authorities. So companies need to assess that early on. Let me turn to one of the parts of the alert I look the most forward to, and that's in the introduction, where you typically have a a witty quote that sort of sets the tone for uh, the year or the alert. And in the past, I've seen you use music or uh, song lyrics, uh, perhaps a poetry quote, but this year you have one from Madeleine Albright, and I'll just read it. I have very set and consistent principles, but I'm flexible on tactics. And I wanted to use that, first of all, ask you about that quote, but then ask you 
to maybe explain how that informed your view of the past year in FCPA, bribery and corruption and compliance? I'll start on this one. I think that it can be likened to a lot of things in the FCPA space, which is one of the reasons why we selected it, both from a compliance perspective, where you know you have to have the principle of <laughs> we're fighting corruption within the company, we are trying to prevent this type of conduct, but companies need to be flexible in their approach. It also applies to enforcement in that they have a principle and they are sort of flexible in their approach. And there have been changes over the past year in that approach. So it seems sort of a, a fitting quote to use for this year, even though it was not music, which may have broken musical lyrics, which may have broken Kevin's heart a bit. <laughs> and then Kevin, maybe if I could end with you, how would you sort of assess past year? I don't want to say uh, we retrenched or realigned, but we did have some significant policy announcements that we will all be utilizing and dealing with, I think, for years to come. But what was your perhaps assessment of the past year in FCPA, bribery and corruption? Yeah. And I think Laura and I have talked about this together some. What's new is what's old, right? It's a, I think you call it retrenchment. And I think we see a lot of a return to the days of Yates, a rejection to perhaps the immediate past administration both verbally and as a matter of practice. And I think that there's a sincerity in the interest of prosecuting individuals. I would strongly expect to see that pursued with great vigor. I think that companies will heed the need for speed where you started us, Tom. And look, a company whose lawyers tell that we want to move through this quickly is going to applaud that because the nightmare for companies, especially from a cost perspective, is these unending investigations that morph from looking at an isolated event in a distant subsidiary to becoming a worldwide review of multiple areas of behavior. I think that companies will applaud the effort to focus, target, and try to end an investigation properly as soon as possible. And I think all of it puts a very deep premium on something that should have been the focus for people for this whole time, which is the great art of scoping an investigation. Properly scoped investigation gets you to the heart of and around and through a problem properly and thoroughly and cost-effective way. And a badly done one can cost the company literally its economic life. And we've seen examples of both. Sadly, the former being maybe a little less exemplified than the ones that we know of that are examples of the latter. But being able to be a practitioner and understanding the dark art of proper scoping is going to come at a premium. Well, guys, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but we're going to link to the uh, alert in our show notes. I wanted to thank you again for, for, one, doing it, and then, two, taking the time to visit with me. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure.